0: Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark.
1: And I'm Michelle Moulton.
0: And today we're going to talk about positioning for soloists.
1: I can't wait for this one, Jonathan.
0: We had April Dunford on the show last week to talk about her book, Obviously Awesome, which is a step-by-step guide on how to position your products and services or your business and It was great. It was so much fun talking to her and she shared tons of interesting information, but we didn't talk that much about positioning (laughs) or how to do it. So this, we thought we would remedy that failure on this episode.
1: Yeah, because it's such a great book. I mean, it was just so, it flowed well and it was so specific, specific to her audience in particular about how to position tech products, but it's, it would be a shame not to talk in more detail about her ideas.
0: Yes. Where do you want to start with this? Should we run through the, the sort of her, her five and a half components of positioning or defining the term? What do you think?
1: Um, that's a good question. I, I was so focused on the process. I'm so dying to jump into the process. But if, if you want to set it up, go right ahead.
0: Sure yeah so i'll I'll define the term a little bit because I know that positioning and marketing and branding and all you know a lot of these terms are maybe a little bit too vague or overlapping for people. positioning to me is a way to make a product or service incredibly memorable where you create this sort of position in the audience's mind, call them your target market or whatever, but it's your product or service is positioned as the one and only for a particular thing or situation. The seminal book on the subject is called Positioning uh, the Battle for the Mind, I think it is, A Battle for the Consumer's Mind by uh, recent Trout. And it's it does a great job, a uh, better job than I just did, defining the, the word. The problem with the book is that, if there is one, is that it doesn't really tell you how to do it, and all the examples are of huge uh, CPG companies like Pepsi and airline companies and stuff. So it's certainly not real applicable for a soloist, which was what was super exciting for me about April's book. And I have another uh, colleague named Philip Morgan who wrote a book for technical firms who do dev shops and that sort of thing on how to position them. And, and when that book came out, I was like, oh, finally, there's some a step by step process. And you know, Phillips and Aprils—they're for different audiences. They're both good. This process I love the one that she lays out and obviously awesome. Basically the idea is you want your customer to really make it really easy for your customer to like remember, like realize and know and remember what it is that your value proposition is. It's like the go-to person or go-to product or go-to service for insert thing that they care about.
1: Yeah. And there's a thing that April uses in her definition and she opens it with the word deliberately. And I think that's a really key word, you know, deliberately defining how you are the best, which is means different and better than right. It's something that a defined market cares a lot about. So it's another way to say what you just said. It's that memorable or unforgettable. Um, <laughs> yeah. Perf- yeah. Unforgettable yeah. is perfect exactly but it's it's that deliberate defining of it and i think what happens a lot of times when soloists struggle with this is that there hasn't been a deliberate defining right of that market
0: right yeah and it's very much about empathy with the people that you're trying to serve and understanding their take on it and it's a lot less about i mean there's a little bit of like what are your unique attributes and that sort of thing that's it's in there but that's like one out of many things it's much more important to understand the target market and speak in language that they're going to understand, understand what pains that they're trying to solve so on and so forth to feel compelled to read down these steps. I don't think we need to go into them, but she's got sort of five and a half components of an effective positioning, which might help define it for people. The first step that she has is competitive alternatives. So like if you, if you didn't exist, what would people do instead? It might not be a competitor, like a direct competitor. Like if you're a web developer, a competitor might be WordPress. I should say not a competitor. An alternative might be WordPress.
1: Or do nothing. Or
0: do nothing. That's always always one of the options.
1: Yeah.
0: And then you get your unique attributes. That's the next thing. So what are the features and capabilities that you have that the alternatives don't have? So how are you different from the other things that they're considering doing? Whether it's WordPress or another, you know, the the web dev shop down the street, I would call these benefits. She calls them value and proof of what, what is the value of these unique attributes that you have? What does that unlock for the customer? Why should they care? Why should they care that you have these three unique features that your alternatives don't have? The next step is number four is the characteristics of the target market. So of this value that your unique features provide over your alternatives, what market cares the most so if you say if you make like some sort of um, amazing magical invoicing solution people who send tons of invoices are probably going to value your solution more than people who send three invoices a year even though they both would value it one of them's going to value it more so what are the characteristics of the target market that's going to value your solution the most and then this is an interesting one. The next one, the fifth one is the market category. And <laughs> this is the hardest one to understand, I think, yeah. but it's where and we did talk about this on the show where what is the context that's going to make your value obvious instead of confusing. So the example she used was if you've got this new piece of software that's specifically for lawyers and you're and you think of it like better email and you're trying to sell it to them as better email and they're like, okay, it's kind of like email. Um, we're currently using Gmail. Gmail has these, you know, autocomplete and it has, it has scheduling and it has calendar. Um, where are, are all those things in here? And you're like, well, no, but it does this one thing really well. And and the context that they're setting that you would be setting if you were trying to sell this as an email program for lawyers is is fighting, it's, it's going to work against you because you set the wrong context. If you, said instead, if you said instead it's team collaboration software for lawyers, all of a sudden they're going to be comparing it to, instead of comparing it to Gmail, they're going to compare it to Salesforce. And you, so you want to set a context where the, the assumptions, the powerful assumptions that the customer is going to make about the thing that you're about to tell them about, are working for you, not against you. So you'd say, you know, that's where the Uber, Oh, we're like Uber for dogs, like that kind of a thing where if you're actually not that much like Uber, that's a terrible thing to say because <laughs> they're going to assume it's like you pull out your phone and a car shows up to take your dog to the park, but Oh no, we don't, that's not what it is. Like, well, that's what <laughs> you, that's the context you set. So that's the market category piece. And that honestly, I think that's one of the trickier pieces.
1: It is hard to see when you're inside looking out versus outside looking in.
0: Right, right. You've got too many preconceived notions and assumptions. The five and a half, like number five and a half, or the optional sixth step is uh, relevant trends. And this is, I think this is a little bit dangerous. And she says the same in the book, which is basically amounts to what trends are happening right now? What are the buzzwords happening right now that are relevant to your product? So in the software space it's it's died down a lot now, but for a long time it was like just add the word blockchain to anything and all of a sudden it's a news item. I mean, I think yeah. there was a I think there was a juice brand that added blockchain to the name. It's like <laughs> what? You know, yeah, it's not relevant. So the word relevance important there. But if you have like a video production solution that that validates the veracity or the the uh provenance of the video using blockchain then mention it i mean it's not a blockchain solution I, what you're doing is using blockchain to make your videos more valuable for some reason or your video service more valuable but if that term is trending and it's a buzzword that people care about and it's relevant to the product throw it in use it it's like when you go to see oh mm, sirloin steak now gluten-free <laughs> <laughs> it's that kind of a thing yeah. but. She made it a, a half optional step for a reason. It's a, a little bit, it can be overused very easily. I just went through the five and a half components of an effective positioning. But those aren't the steps, that's not the process for going through. So that's what I think I can hand off to you to kind of walk through. There's a 10-step positioning process that she talks about.
1: What I want to do is, is I, I want to use her lingo. But then what I'd like us to do is really talk about how this applies to positioning people versus products. Because when you're a soloist, you're typically, you're starting out by positioning yourself, right? You have yourself first, and then you'll have products, typically, and that's usually the order. So the first step of her 10-step process is understand the clients who love you. Some of this, I think, from her perspective is she works with companies that already exist, right? They're in a startup phase, but they already exist. So she talks about really looking at who your clients are and deciding who really loves you you can spend a lot of your time and energy on trying to please some clients who aren't like all that happy i mean they're not unhappy but they always want more from you that's difficult to deliver but if you really focus on the ones who are um, probably quieter right? They, they love you. They're getting full value of what you do. Um, in the case of a person versus a product, they may talk about you more. They may not. They they may want to keep you a secret and not talk about you with others, or um, they may talk about you to everyone they know.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. They never complain about your price. They pay on time. They don't micromanage you. They're great. Like really good clients.
1: Yeah. And I mean, everybody has like a little different definitions of who those are. But when you start to look at them and you start to go, oh, yeah, so Joe and Janet and Sally and Peter are all great clients. And here's why. When you start to look at the commonalities and you start to dig into why did they love you? That's where the gold is. Right? Right. Because it helps you understand what they value, but it also helps you identify who's likely to love you in the future.
0: <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. Dear listener, if you're not sure, like eh, like think back which ones are which, just imagine when you get, boom, you have mail, and you look and you'd see it's from a, a client. Do you do you think, oh cool, like are you energized, are you excited to open it, or are you like, ugh? <laughs> And you like don't open it and you open something else instead like, oh, my Amazon order shipped. You know, if you're opening up your Amazon notifications before this client email, that's probably not your ideal client. And think of the ones where, you know, when you get a message from them or you get off a phone call, you feel like energized and excited and and, and sort of pepped up versus the ones where you're just like, you know, oh.
1: Well, it's, it is. You know, I was afraid I was going to sound too California woo-woo, but it is, it is an energy thing. People either, they get you energized or they suck it out of you. And there are variations on that theme, but you want to be with the people who rev you up, who you can't wait to solve their problems or help them get where they want to go.
0: Now here's an interesting thing. When I think of those people, those types of clients that I've had, I do recognize traits. They're mostly they're not traits like they have a particular job title or gender or age it's it's nothing demographic it's very it's very much an attitude that they have in a way of seeing the world and uh, you know a mentality it's much more those sorts of things than they make this much per year and drive this kind of car it's it's very much about their really their, their worldview and their attitude and how it maps to mine. And we're not, I wouldn't even say it's like people who are similar to me. In fact, it's really not. I don't feel like it is, but it's, it's a particular attitude that really clicks with that that I can really click with. I feel like I can really help.
1: Yeah. it's just like a psychographic.
0: It's, yeah, exactly.
1: You know, one of the things I, I learned with my clientele is I love people who are willing to work fast. And by that, I mean that they don't drag out every step. So somebody who, if I'm doing a strategy project that typically takes between four and eight weeks, somebody for whom it's going to be 12 weeks, I, I find that difficult. And not, the, the, it's not that the person is difficult. It's that the stops and starts don't allow me to do my best work. So it's, you know, it's you finding what those things are for you and for any products you offer and for your services. I mean, let's talk about the second step because it would be easy to skip over the second step for a soloist, which is, right, is to form a positioning team. And this is clearly important in an organization because you've got to have the right people engaged in this process or you will fail, clearly. And it would be easy to just say, well, you don't need a positioning team. It's it's you. But when you think about this, you want to think very carefully who you ask for advice on this. Okay, so the first thing is, I mean, you could go hire a consultant to help you. All right, so you could certainly do that. Um, If you're doing it on your own, then one of the things you want to be careful about, I think, is you don't want somebody who's too closely aligned with the status quo.
0: A hundred percent, yes. So I have a student who was in a kind of like a forum or a group of other people who did the same job same discipline. Say it was react native development. It doesn't matter. All did the same thing. And it was like the the sort of crab bucket mentality (laughs) of, you know, you get that metaphor. It's like, like totally yeah, if there's just one crab in the bucket, it could easily climb out. But if there's a bunch of crabs, they keep pulling each other down, trying to climb over each other and nobody can get out. That's a problem. Like you need to be careful when you need to be able to detect when people are just commiserating and looking for validation of their negative worldview or whatever it is. You have to be really careful about that. So, just to give a, I just wanted to give a little bit more concrete example of what you're saying there because it's very dangerous to ask someone who's a peer, like just unless they are like successful and farther ahead than you, uh, or like they're 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 doing something right for sure then maybe I would take their advice a lot more. I'd give it a lot more credibility. But if you just have a big group of people that nobody's really getting ahead and they're all kind of stuck and then asking them for advice and like, well, I read a thing that says you should try this. And it's like, ugh.
1: Oh, the chorus,
0: ugh, the chorus, right? The peanut gallery.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, it, and I think the other thing is you want the whoever you ask to be part of this and you may just use them to bounce something off of versus including them in the actual going through each step is you know it has to be someone who can give you feedback who doesn't take things personally and doesn't have a worldview that's etched in stone that's a challenge i've heard people joke about oh yeah you know i don't want to hear the spouse's opinion Mine is usually the opposite. I do want to hear the spouse's opinion because usually the spouses know their spouse better than anybody else and they know the the fabulous things about them. So it's interesting. But you you don't want to rely on a positioning team that is primarily uh, you and your spouse who's not in the business or you and colleagues or former colleagues who, I like the way you said it, who aren't ahead of you that's really the challenge is you want to work with people who've solved this problem already for themselves or for others and can help you through the through the process
0: right i mean it stands to reason like you want to take financial advice from warren buffett not like your buddy who <laughs> blows his whole paycheck on kino. <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: right it's obvious but exactly. yet if your are your buddy you're friends with and if your buddy says oh that's that'll never work. You know, that positioning statement's no good or like people won't buy that or people never pay that much money. You're really asking the wrong person. hmm
1: yeah, yeah. Her next step is um, align your positioning vocabulary and let go of your baggage. Love this, <laughs> love <laughs> this. So align your positioning vocabulary. To me, what that means is that You start to talk about everything that you do in alignment. There's nothing that is out of alignment. I mean, I know that sounds so simple. It's like a train on the tracks, right? You're, you're going to keep going. And the more that you go, the faster the momentum that you build and you're staying on the tracks. You're staying on those tracks that you've identified and everything has to be aligned. Now she talks about the vocabulary, but that's the starting point. What is it that, that you are positioning? Is it yourself as a solo consultant or deliverer of services? So start to think about how you're going to say that and use those words over and over consistently. I think it's, you can't separate that from letting go of the baggage Man, I'll tell you, I've been there. I've carried over some word baggage and like the word personal brand, which I've used on and off. It's it's that has a very particular connotation with the work that I do. And it's not exactly what I do. So I've had to let go of talking too much about personal brand because it immediately brings up an image in people's mind. So it's this, you have to be able to let go of the old way that you talked about yourself.
0: Yep, even if you don't have a team, I think you still need to have alignment with your tactics, with yourself, Mm -hmm. because otherwise you can end up moving in like 10 directions at once and therefore making no progress. So for me, a lot of this has to do with like being super clear on what your objective is. What's the goal? And once if you are laser focused on that and you come up with a strategy to reach the goal, then it helps you align your tactics because you can decide between, well, should I do Facebook ads or should I be super active on social media or just like random tactics? Like what makes the most sense for my objective? and get in a get your activities even if it's just you get your activities in alignment so you're not pulling yourself in opposite directions at the same time
1: yeah yeah and you know the other thing that I think might be helpful when you're going through this positioning exercise in in this one where you're aligning your positioning vocabulary is to chart out your point of view a lot of times that really helps clarify the words you want to be using Right,
0: what do you mean, point, chart it out,
1: well, write it out. Write it. Don't just write it once and leave it there. Come back to it because your point of view is part of your positioning. Right, it's how you look at the services that you're providing for the people for whom you provide it. So, I don't want to go into that now. We've had another episode, another few episodes about that, but it might be something that helps you clarify. The words, the vocabulary you want to use for positioning. Yeah. Any more on letting go of baggage?
0: I don't think so. <laughs> the last thing I'll say is like that that she chooses to focus on vocabulary is interesting because the the words that you're using are sort of reflections of the thoughts that are going through your head and the and your thinking, of course, right? Like obviously. So, uh, but it, it's especially in a team environment, the way that you would change their thoughts is through using different words so aligning on the vocab there's just so many good reasons to like align yeah. your vocabulary with yes. with clients in the past i've like set up an entire glossary the first thing like to get started on the project here we're going to we're going to hyper define a bunch of terms that are normally a little bit vague and that's normally fine but in the context of this project it's really important for us to define this set of 12 words with like extreme focus so we all know that we're talking about the same thing
1: Yes. Yes. Ultimately, the goal of becoming an authority is that you're developing language with your clients. What do these words mean? In this case, what we're talking about is, is how you position yourself in the marketplace, how people see you and how they decide to buy you. But those are inextricably connected.
0: <laughs> <Say that 10 laughs> times I, know. Fast.
1: I know. I can't believe I got it out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So step four,
1: is uh, list your true competitive alternatives. Yeah, you, you talked a bit about that. And I think it's interesting because it's, I think we all think of our competitive alternatives as other people who do what we do, but it's bigger than that, potentially.
0: Yeah, I don't even like the word, I mean, she says competitive alternatives. I just like saying alternatives versus competitors. Cause when you say competitors, people think other people who do web development or other people who do copywriting, but there are way more alternatives than that. And I, I use this a lot, this concept of the different alternatives when uh, helping people write proposals, you know, with options for a client where you do three very different things. These options are alternative ways to move the needle toward the goal that the client is trying to achieve. But the same thing is true in the, I almost don't want to call it the competitive landscape. It's like, it's like the client is in a situation. They might not even be looking for a solution. They might need a solution. Let's, let's just say they are looking for a solution. They've got a pain. I've got a headache. And there's so many alternatives that they could look to, to solve that problem. It's not just uh, a shelf full of different aspirin brands it's also like maybe i need a neck massage maybe i should go to the doctor call them competing products and services that look nothing like one another but have uh, different features you could imagine a pain relief brand being like you don't need to go to the doctor you just need to take this pill (laughs) you know so they're positioning themselves against a doctor's point you're gonna take time out of your day and have to get a babysitter and or sit in the waiting room with your kids just take this pill (laughs) <laughs> so that but that's an example of of alternatives to, to solving yes. your headache problem but they're not I, I hate the word the word competitor i feel is misleading they compete with each other for the wallet i guess but um it's it feels a little misleading
1: it's a landscape i liked your word landscape of alternatives and it's a landscape of choice right Because sometimes the choice is to make no choice, is to just do nothing for now and see what happens. But I think that the minute the blinders are off, when you're trying to position yourself and you see all the different kinds of alternatives that are out there, I think it makes you look at your unique attributes and features differently.
0: Right? Yeah. Because you're not you're not saying like like you know imagine two apples in a Whole Foods like one of them's like well. I'm a little rounder than that guy. And I'm a little greener. And, you know, I still have like a leaf on my stem. You definitely want me, <laughs> you know, apples to apples, right? You don't, those yeah. aren't the differences that matter to the client or the yes. potential buyer. The, the differences are way bigger than that.
1: Yeah. You have to stand back and look at all the apples and then you have to yeah, walk all around the other food. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. then you've got to go look at the candy
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the, the prepared foods. Oh, I want yeah. something hot. Never mind yeah. apples. I want chocolate bar. Like, there's yeah. so many, so many solutions to like the person selling quesadillas out front.
1: Yeah, and I want, want a pretzel. I want something salty. I don't want a sweet snack. Right. I don't want. I don't want anything healthy. I want something <laughs> with like some crap in it.
0: Yeah. So, right. So those are those are the alternatives. Like there. And anyway, the the reason I'm hammering on this is because when I'm working with with people on a positioning statement. One of the things is, like, what is different about you? Like, how are you different than all the alternatives? And they'll be like, oh, well, I've got more experience writing Rails code than the next guy writing Rails code. It's like, no, that's not what I mean. It's like, why would somebody bother writing Rails code in the first place? Like, why not just use, you know, something off the shelf or some service like Squarespace or not that Squarespace is a Rails competitor or alternative, but there are other things that you could do. Like learning how to do it yourself as an alternative. Mm-hmm. Like right now I've got a leaky hose faucet or whatever it's called.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jonathan, you're not going to be doing that yourself. Please say. Exactly. That's say how handy not. I am.
0: <laughs> and so far I've chosen to do nothing about it because it's not leaking that much. It's just drip, drip, drip. But it's a problem. I, need, I probably need to do something about it. I'll probably wait until it's spraying out and is urgent. And then, what are my alternatives? I've got uh, just in this actual case, I could call, you know, like Roto Rooter, who will show up round the clock and just like charge you an arm and a leg. Or I know a guy that's a plumber that I could maybe do a trade with. It's like they're both plumber. But there's not they're not competitors. Like my friend's got a successful plumbing business with a different kind of business model than Roto Rooter, and. They're, you would never normally consider them as competitors. They're not competitors. They're not competing in any way for customers. They're completely different kind of customers that the two companies serve. But they're alternatives for me in addition to doing nothing and in addition to me dorking around with it and making it actually a really bad problem <laughs> by trying to <laughs> fix it myself.
1: Or you could ask Erica to fix it because she's really handy.
0: She's handier than I am. <laughs> yeah. My six-year-old's handier than I am, let's be honest. (laughs) Um, Okay, so that was step four. List your true competitive alternatives. Like what are the things that people would do instead of hiring you or buying your product and service?
1: So, and, and the point of doing that is so that you can see what's different about you. I mean, I just want to like underscore that again. That's the reason for the exercise, because until you know what's out there, it's hard to really understand how your potential buyer sees you and how they put you in a box.
0: Which leads us directly into step five, isolate your unique attributes or features.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, this is what's so interesting. Now, here's, I wouldn't say the process is different exactly when you're, you're positioning a person versus a product, but actually maybe the process is different now that I think about it. So here's how I think about it, right? Is we're all individuals. We have a unique set of experiences, of values, of talents, of passions, of goals. And so what you have to do when you're positioning yourself is pull all those out so that you know exactly what is unique and different about you. And one way to start with that to me is the experiences you've been through. Branding or positioning a product is a little bit different. You're not really looking at experiences other than the client's or the customer's experience with your products. Is that is that mm-hmm. making sense, Jonathan? Are you with I, me?
0: Oh, yes. I'm kind of hung up on, I just thought to myself, we should do a whole episode on the difference between branding and positioning. But Yeah.
1: (laughs) I, I, I said branding and I meant positioning. Yeah. Right. You're right. It's different.
0: Yeah. But yeah, but I get it. Yep.
1: Yeah. So one of the challenges when it's you is, and just you is that you have to pull all those things out. An easy way to start is to just list all of the significant experiences you've had in your life, in your career. I'm talking big stuff, the things that kind of wrote on the slate of who you are and who you've become as a a person and as a professional. When you do that and then you go away and you come back and look at it, you can start to see what's different about you than somebody else that you might've thought of as your big competitor. But when you actually line up your strengths, your features with theirs, they actually look different.
0: Right. Yeah, can you you think of an example or can you like do it to me so that people can get a feel for like how they would do it to themselves? (laughs)
1: Can I do it to you? Okay, uh, yeah, so. Like
0: what uh, am I am I writing down like like has kids, got a black belt, has a music degree, yes. stuff like that? Yeah, yes,
1: okay. that's exactly it. So, and, and there would be some things that you might not wanna say publicly that you would put on that list. I think I've told this story before about a woman that I worked with who, she really wanted to be a coach, but she wasn't sure she really had it in her. And she was debating whether to spend a lot of money getting certified and, and working on a, on a higher corporate level. Well, it turns out that she was the daughter of an alcoholic mother, a severely alcoholic mother. And what happens in a lot of those situations is you wind up coaching your parent. So she had all of these innate coaching skills that she never gave herself credit for and I'm like you have instinctively this skill that a lot of people have to study for years to get now studying will only make it better so she learns something about herself by looking at that
0: yeah so, so it's, it's like taking thing. an inventory of life experience like major life life experiences
1: yeah and the good the bad and the ugly I and mean, you want you want all of that what I also like to do in addition to that is, and I usually do it as a separate exercise, but some of the the really great, I call them projects, the project experiences you've had. And these, um, they don't actually have to have been a project, but you might look at them as a project. So example, you are in a, in a corporate setting, so you have a, a job job, but you worked on something, you got this Thing done in combination with some other people, when you start to look at the work that you did as a paid employee, as projects, you can start to look and see, where did I do my best work? And so if you have even four or five of them, you can start to see the commonalities between them. Maybe you always work really well when you're on a team of people. You know, you really don't like to work by yourself, but if you have this team, you do great. And by the way, that team, it really helps if they're interdisciplinary. I don't want to be a team full of other on a team full of other developers. I want to be in a team where I'm the only developer and I'm working with somebody in purchasing and I'm working with somebody in accounting and somebody on the, the shop floor. So you start to pick apart what you've done well, what you've really loved, and then that's how you can start to see what you're really good at.
0: Cool. Yep. I get that.
1: Yeah. Do it to you. I hope it, I
0: hope everyone else does too. <laughs> yeah. I just like to, I like to make it like a little concrete. Cause some of this stuff is kind of like, you can't tell like scale wise how big or small something is without getting some kind of example.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it is different with people. I mean, it really is because when you, when you, Work in an organization and you're responsible for a product I and mean, you have feelings about that product You have a viewpoint about that product, but at the end of the day, you are not the product
0: So what you're talking about is positioning kind of like an authority business where the the person is the authority and And this is like there these are the unique things unique attributes or features as she would call it I mean, I feel like it's worth saying as an aside that that person can also have products like an online course that would have perhaps a different set of, you know, it might inherit the, it certainly hopefully would inherit the values of the person, the, the sort of um, unique attributes of the person, but it can have its own set of, you know, how is this, what are the alternatives to taking this online course? this exercise, it's like a fractal, it's like, like it could happen on, on uh, the overall brand of the whatever you want to call it, the company slash person slash personality, uh, but also in the, the individual products and services that that person offers.
1: Yeah, when you have an authority business, I mean, it all comes back to the individual, right? That's who you're positioning first, typically, right? But every product can have a unique positioning, and some would argue that it should. In other cases, you don't. I started to say you don't need to, but the positioning is still different. There may be a lot of overlap, but a course isn't a book and a book isn't a coaching session. You do have to look at positioning with each of those, but where you start is with you.
0: Yeah. Well, so now here's the thing I don't do that anymore with people. Who knows? Maybe it's just the people I attract, but. I will try that, but a lot of times I get a real strong identity-threatened pushback around, like, no, I can do more than that, or no, I... I like, they don't want to focus them, themselves, because there's they're a soloist, and they only offer one thing, which is custom projects. Like, I write Rails apps. And to position their entire identity around something hyper-specific freaks them out, and they won't do it. So the... The workaround that I've come up with is is to make it less threatening by creating something that they can position that's not them, that's clearly not them. I have friends that have done this where they have partners and the partners are like, no way are we becoming a specialist. We need to stay generalist. They don't say it in so many words, but that's what they're saying. Uh, I can think of at least one example, but more than one, in fact, where they say, all right, tell you what, let's start, I'm going to start a side brand and I'll just funnel the work to the firm. And then lo and behold, the hyper focused side project, which uses the exact same skill sets that they use as generalists, takes over the entire business <laughs> within 18 months because all of the leads are coming from that. yes so it so it's it's a trick basically that where I would say to somebody, I mean, this is how the pricing seminar works now where it's like, Let's come up with a campaign for a particular lead magnet or a particular product I service and it's not you It's not the whole company. It's a product It's separate from you and position that and the fear is completely gone. Like nobody nobody gets the fear Because it's just one thing that I sell and then once they get the evidence that like oh wow Like people are asking me about this and they want to know more and like this has never happened to me before I've found maybe someone maybe this will resonate with someone listening, which is why I bring it up is that if you're super nervous about, you know, it's just you and you don't want to be laser focused like that, then if you can create something and do a positioning exercise around that thing and it takes away that fear and you see it work like gangbusters, that might be the evidence that you need that wow, this is this is really really powerful. This really works.
1: It's so interesting. I'm sure this is a self-selection process because I don't have that. When when clients come to me, they're usually they've already created something, and they've a lot of times they've created a bunch of somethings, um, and they can't figure out like how to punch through. Like, how do I take all these little different things that I've that I've put together over the last ten years or fifteen or twenty years of consulting, and how do I make have it make sense? Or I think I want to write a book, but I don't really know what to write about, and so the process and this is where it's easier, like I said, being from the outside looking in, because I don't have any preconceived notions. I just soak in what they've given me, what they're excited about, and then look at the marketplace to see where the holes are and then and then create that position. I can only think of one real pushback that I had. In fact, the client fired me, or I should say his wife fired me. <laughs> so, that was in all the years I've been doing this, there was one, and it was really just a fundamental difference between him and her about how they wanted to position the business. And I don't want to get in between a husband and a wife. That's not a place for a consultant. But I find people are really open, they don't always like the first approach. And I I remember having a client burst into tears and I thought, oh my God, what have I done? And then, and it was just the opposite. She said, oh my God, it's like, I can see myself as that. And I'm so excited by it. And why didn't I do this five years ago? It's that, that process, you just have to, you have to be ready and you have to be willing to, you know, to take a risk. But I think the thing is most of us know it when we see it for ourselves is we, there's that feeling of excitement of, yes, I want to do that. It's, it's a little bit like the story you've told a few times, Jonathan, about how you got into hourly billing is nuts is you, you, you found your way into that and you grabbed on and said, yes, this is what I want to do. The next, however long it takes of my life is going to be (laughs) dedicated to this. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I like your approach better. I have found that it's very difficult with a certain type of student. So
1: it's, it's almost impossible for the approach I described for someone to do it completely by themselves. You've got to have a coach or a consultant to help you have it all make sense. And you know, walk you through the tough parts,
0: right? It's tough to read your own label from inside the bottle.
1: Yes. It's hard. It's, (sighs) I mean, it's hard for us to do ourselves too.
0: Yeah. Step six,
1: Oh, map the attributes and features to value themes. I don't know about you. I have to say that like three times to get that. So you take those attributes and then map them to themes. Themes being things in the marketplace that need attention. So like I liked her example about the email for lawyers that really is an email. So when you start to look at the value, and if if I remember rightly, the value in that particular situation was that they had a secure way of sharing files, right? So all of a sudden, a secure way of sharing files—it doesn't map to email.
0: Yeah, at all. Right.
1: No, no. So all of a sudden, you have this. If you look at it that way, you have a whole different universe that you can map to.
0: Mm -hmm. To me, this one means, like, why should I care? and me being the buyer. So like, Oh, you've got, for example, she's a camera example in the book where she's like, Oh, this camera has a 15 megapixel camera. Want to buy it? And it's like, well, what's a megapixel? Like, why do I care? I don't know why I should care about that. I usually refer to this as connecting the dots. So if you if you've got some feature or attribute that's unique between you and the alternatives that someone might choose, you still need to translate it into, for your buyer who is not your peer. They're not one of you. They don't understand what a megapixel is or what node is or any of that garbage, like how to drive a cement mixer. They don't care. They don't know. They just know they need an iOS app or they know they need a foundation for their house or they know they need to take better pictures of their kids. So you need to connect 15 megapixels or I know how to drive a cement mixer to this thing that they know they want this thing that they know they value and it's it's like an order of magnitude different it's it's like the things that you want to talk about your features are obvious they're so obvious to you but they're completely not obvious to if you're talking to the right people they're they're almost certainly not going to be obvious there are some exceptions when a piece of jargon enters the popular consciousness Uh, Like blockchain (laughs) or a particular ingredient in a food, like kale, like who, like it's, it doesn't, or gluten, right? Like those things, they'll, they'll enter the popular consciousness somehow. Yeah, exactly. Like, like through whatever TV or like popular podcasts or something. And then it becomes a meaningful, then the feature and the benefit become the same thing because people are like, I need keto. Let me (laughs) find something with keto or I need something that's gluten-free or I need something with AI and then okay now the buzzword became or the ingredient became something that you put on the front of the label and you see this with food and drug packaging all the time where somehow there were a bunch of news reports or maybe that maybe the company did it and they they took this uh unique ingredient or feature that they have and they they kind of forced it into the public con- public consciousness but in oh, general
1: i just bought i just bought some rice the other day like just a basic staple and it said gluten free on it and I was like really?
0: I mean here's okay <laughs> or it's like like non-gummy bears now fat free it's like there's <laughs> straight sugar like no kidding so you know it's healthy Gummy bears are healthy now so <laughs> <laughs> Who but knew? The, right but the in general though, we know way 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 more about our product and our direct competitors than anybody that we should want as clients. So they are not aware of the entire landscape. They, they know what their alternatives are, at least the ones they're aware of. They're probably, it's probably not a full list of your direct competitors. That's almost definite. But you still need to connect the dots between your 15 megapixel camera and sharp photos of your kids, you know, that you could blow up to a wall. Oh, would you like to take pictures of your kids that you could blow up and have on the wall? Well, in that case, you're gonna need a 15 megapixel camera. They don't want a 15 megapixel camera. They want sharp photos of their kids. So you've got to connect the dots between those two things. And the thing that you connect your feature to will be different depending on who you choose.
1: Yes, which is kind of the next point. But it's that feature benefit um, comparison Mm because her next point is determine who cares a lot,
0: yeah. So somebody right. with a lot of kids,
1: <laughs> <laughs> or a lot of wall space,
0: or a photographer that that does school pictures, you know, like they take lots of pictures for kids. Like a photographer mm-hmm. would probably care more, you know, uh, someone yeah. who's taking loads and loads and loads and loads of pictures of kids might care more about having a better camera. And in fact, I think you could make that case very easily that professional photographers just spend a lot more on cameras and megapixels than. Uh, your average bear.
1: Yeah, it's it and I think part of the challenge of of this step is that you know, it, the first step you're you're understanding the clients who love you. So this is you have to find out who cares, right? So you can kind of look back and say who loves me already. Now where do I find more of them? Is really how I think of this. Yeah, next the di- step. right.
0: The distinction is the step one is looking at existing customers. So somehow, with a bad positioning statement or bad positioning in general, you manage to get some customers who somehow saw the value, and you want them to report back to you why they value the alternative that they chose. This is more forward-looking. It's not looking back. That's to me. That's looking backwards. Which is fine. You're sort of figuring out where you are. The step seven, determine who cares a lot, is extrapolating that into the future. Like maybe the kind of customers you have now that love you aren't actually the ones who would value you the most. Which this clearly could get into a pricing conversation. Positioning and pricing are extremely tightly tied.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't talked about that at all. Right. Another episode. <laughs> <laughs> So let's let's keep going because we're we're getting close
0: to yeah, time yeah. I think yeah.
1: Yep. So the next one is find a market frame of reference that puts your strengths at the center and then determine how to position within it.
0: Yeah, and we did talk about this a little bit already. So well, here you,
1: and on the show.
0: Yes, And this show. Yeah, uh, I where, mean the, the
1: last show, <laughs> the last
0: show, and this show where you want to. You don't want to pick the wrong frame of reference because then all of your marketing resources, time, money, energy, and emotions are going to go into fighting the wrong set of assumptions. And it's much easier to just pick something that provides the right set of assumptions. If you're positioning yourself as Uber for Dogs, but you know, we said this already, Uber for dogs, but it has nothing to do with pulling out your phone and getting a car to come pick up your dog, then you've picked a terrible frame of reference because they're just constantly gonna they're gonna make uh, all these assumptions, these powerful assumptions that are incorrect. And uh, you want those powerful assumptions on your side. This is an, I think this is a, a reason why you hear you hear the advice I know from David C. Baker and others that you don't generally, you don't want to be defining a new market in general. You can, and it's cool and that can be a huge home run. But in general, it's easier, especially if you're not a sophisticated marketer, to go into a market and say it kind of like draft off their lead and say like, you know, Uber came in and defined the market. And now we can be like, OK, you know that thing over there? We're just like that, except we've got this difference. And so you, you can kind of like all of the marketing that they did or all of the all of the work that they did to create a position in people's minds. You can create a spot right next to that one that's uh very easy to occupy but if you if you use the wrong analogy if you think like oh well we called it uber for dogs to get investment money uh it's uber in the sense that it's potentially massively scalable and it has to do with um you know it's a silicon valley startup that's a unicorn like all the wrong comparisons yeah
1: that's not how i think of uber
0: right yeah so that's not how your buyers are going to think of uber of you if exactly. you're like uber except whatever
1: that, that frame of reference is is tricky. And I one of the things that I think is really helpful is when you do your research of who else is out there, what other alternatives there are, not competitors, but what other alternatives, it, if you start to look at them, you can kind of see that frame of reference that they've chosen. If they've positioned well, you can see it. I think that allows you to try it on a little bit. For size so you can see what somebody else is doing not that you're going to copy them but it gives you an example of of a way you can play in the space
0: mm-hmm. yeah there's a there's a, a business classic called crossing the chasm by jeffrey moore that goes into this specific thing in great detail so if, if someone was looking for another book to add to their their pile of stuff they haven't read um, that book is fantastic. It, and like April's, it's very much focused on people who are building tech products like software products, but, um, still it's the same sort of, uh, I think it's pretty easy to extrapolate, you know, where it talks about, he does a lot of, uh, a lot, he devotes a lot of chapters to examples where people were trying to break a new product. So like people, nobody gets what this is. Like, like this, by the way, this is how you know you have bad positioning is like people are kind of like looking at you with that sort of crooked puppy head, like, what do you do? <laughs> you feel like you need a PowerPoint presentation to explain, like, in 45 minutes to explain what you do. Ugh, yeah, that's deadly. not good. Yeah. Deadly. Right. So, anyway, if you wanted to find out more about finding a, a frame of reference, he's got, uh, there's quite a bit of the book devoted to that, if I remember correctly.
1: Cool. Well, number nine, we've kind of already talked about this, which is layer on a trend, but be careful is how she describes this, this step. And we've probably beaten that enough.
0: Yeah, that's the gluten free and that's the blockchain and it can get you some PR, it can get you some shares, can get you some meetings, Uh, but you do have to be careful about it because the trend is a trend. It's probably going to go away and you don't want you to go away with the trend. Like if you're too closely associated with the trend, then you'll go down with it when it does go down. Poof. (laughs) Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So the last one, I have to confess, I mean, it, it's going to seem strange for a soloist. You could see how it would work for inside a, a larger organization, but capture your positioning so it can be shared. Now, a typical soloist who goes through these steps by themselves is going to go, oh, okay. Yeah. So I'll, I'll call it this. And here's my new tagline, and off to the races. You're not done. Being able to write it down is really critical. And the example she uses, I love because her organizations always have a sales team. She doesn't work in anyone that doesn't have one. So the first thing you have to do is you've got to get that positioning, the story solidified in the minds of the salespeople because they're representing you out front. Now, in the case of a soloist, you are the salesperson, but it's the same process. You really have to be able to solidify this and, and start to change your stories appropriately so that they fit the positioning. So, And by change your stories, I mean how you talk about yourself and your services and your audience on your website, um, what your LinkedIn headline and you know introductory paragraph is. You might even change some of the old jobs to focus on something different, how you talk about. Uh, your ideas in, in Twitter, Instagram, any social place, it's, it's got to carry all the way through. And we talked about the alignment of, of messaging before, but you, you can't stop yet. You've got to now roll this out and it'll take a while, you know, you'll tweak and you'll play and you'll experiment, but you're not done until you take that positioning and change it on every place that you exist publicly
0: Right. And if you think of it, if you think of those those places online, your website, your LinkedIn bio, your Twitter bio, your podcast, whatever the things are, those are, you could think of them in a sort of abstract way as like people out there selling for you. Like these are things out there that are, even though you did them yourself, maybe then, they're, but they're still out there projecting this identity or whatever it is. So you do want to kind of take an inventory of all those places and go back and change the ones that you can. And I I, I like that you went in and even said, like, maybe even change some of the job descriptions, not, not in a, obviously not in a fake way, but going back and emphasizing different parts of the job that are more relevant to the new position so that there's like a, there's like a credible story from, from your history to current. I've never done this, but I wouldn't be above going back and like changing the intro, like going back to a hundred podcast episodes and changing the intro on every single one and re-uploading them. Like I would, I wouldn't feel bad about doing that.
1: No, you know? I think that's perfectly okay. I mean, it's hard to get somebody to want to do that at that yeah, level. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there yeah. are a lot
0: of easier things. There's a lot more low-hanging fruit. You know, your your social media bios, headlines on your website, the real big picture stuff. You know, any product pages that you have, like connect the dots between the product and your overall positioning and why it makes sense for this to be a product or a service that you offer.
1: Yeah, this high value first. There could be someone who who their podcast is the primary driver of clients or product sales of some sort. Then it might be worth it. I mean, the podcast intros might be really high up if people binge watch from the beginning.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So go through, you know, once you have settled on something, you want it to you want it to kind of echo through all of your marketing materials and go through and update stuff.
1: Well, I think the other thing April talks about, I don't know if it was in that step, but she does talk about writing a messaging document. And a lot of people think of this as, oh, yeah, that's something you do when you have a big firm and you have to make sure that all the brand colors are aligned and we're t- saying this. It's not that at all. It's getting your key messages. I call them sound bites, right? Get get your sound bites down in a single document. And its they're not long. I mean, if it's more than a page, you have too many um, as a soloist. And so it's getting really clear on those messages and writing them down and keeping them in a place where you can easily pull them up if you forget until it starts to become natural to use those words. And the other thing I I just want to tie back to is we've talked a lot on the show about the idea of developing your own vocabulary as an expert, as an authority. This is related to that. I don't want to call it marketing because it isn't just marketing. It's more than that. It's your point of view. It's how you develop your intellectual property, but there's an opportunity here to do that. And in fact, I thought April really demonstrated that well. When she talks about context, she talked about it on the show. She talked about it in the book. I feel like context is one of her unique vocabulary words.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That was the first time I've heard it used that way.
1: Yeah. And it was really effective. That's just a, 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 just a really simple, but profound and sublime example of how you can use vocabulary to push your ideas forward and also to position yourself in the minds of the people who love you or who sh- who will love you.
0: <laughs> yes. You, people you should at least start dating.
1: I know. I started to say people who should love you and I, I took the should out. <laughs> <laughs> people who we believe there's a high probability they will love you <laughs>
0: <laughs> right yeah like why not stack the deck in your favor right? yeah yeah like life's too it short is. right
1: life is too darn short for that
0: all right folks so this is kind of a marathon episode apologies for that but hopefully it was helpful and uh not to beat a dead horse but that is our favorite thing to do uh, <laughs> you should really go out and read this book you will you will thank yes. us you will thank april it is really good
1: Yeah, she did a great job.
0: All right. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark.
1: And I'm Michelle Moulton.
0: And we hope you join us again next time for The Business of Authority. Bye.
1: Bye Bye-bye.